Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Preacher's Corner. I'm Pastor Jay, and welcome to this beautiful Monday. As we come into John chapter number 8, we begin in verse number 12. We work our way down to verse number 30 for the first section of our day today. And we consider Jesus' teaching as concerning being the light of the world and the refutations of the argument that Jesus provided to the scribes and Pharisees while keeping in mind he's still there uh, in the temple. So very exciting the situation that is about to transpire. And this is one, of course, you guys are pretty familiar with me saying this, but this is one of my favorite places in Scripture uh, because we're in it today. Uh, also because this is one of the places where you actually hear people have the audacity to be able to call the very Son of God something so crass as a bastard son. And so uh, we're going to find the depths that are possible inside of the human heart today. And with that, we're just going to enter into a time of prayer and ask God's blessing upon our receiving of His Word. Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks for the blessing of this beautiful Monday that you have provided us, Lord. No matter what the weather is outside, where we are gathered on the corner, it's perfect because we stand in the midst of the Son of God, rejoicing in the Word of God, praising in the Holy Spirit of God. We pray that you will be with us, bless us, cause thy face to shine upon us, that we may receive of the richness of your your grace, your glory, and your precious and holy word. We'll thank you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, guys, here we go. We're going to get into verse number 12 and read down to verse number 30 and then dive into the middle. Praise the Lord. And the scripture goes forward to say, Then Jesus spoke again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear record of yourself, and your record is not true. And Jesus answered them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true, for I know from where I came, and I know where I'm going, but you cannot tell from where you came or where you go. You judge after the flesh. I judge no man. And yet, if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bears witness of myself, and the Father that sent me bears witness of me. Then said they unto him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. Now these words spoke Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him for his hours yet not yet come. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, you cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he said, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said unto them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not 
that I am he. You shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They didn't understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me, and the Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed on him. Well, praise the Lord, guys, for the blessing of verse number 30 that reveals that as Jesus speaks the truth, that many would believe on him. And the reality is, is that it's necessary for Jesus to speak in order for people to be able to come to know so that they can believe. It's one of the important things that I have discovered and something that I'm beginning to to work hard to implement in, in both the corner as well as uh, in, in regular services is a, a simple reading of the Word of God before presenting explanations, but just a simple reading of the Word of God. As we know from Romans chapter number 10 and verse number 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's not necessary that the explanation be given at the first, but that the reading, the reading is the most important part. For the Word of God is capable, just as Jesus does with these Pharisees and these scribes, uh, is fully capable of being able to present its truth without Jason or anybody else but that the hearer would be able to hear the purity of the Word of God as it is being read, that it grabs a hold of the soul, so that the explanation just simply gives body to the reading, but not much more. For the Word of God through the Holy Spirit is perfectly capable all by itself of communicating to the heart of man the necessity of Jesus so it's very important for us to always have a time of reading before we tend to maybe muck it all up with explanation. So the joy of verse number 30 is that as Jesus was speaking to these Pharisees and as he was providing explanation to those questions and things that they would be speaking or thinking in their heart, that, that people would hear the Son of God, hear the voice of His message coming from the Father directly to them, and that many would believe on Him. That is so thrilling. Uh, a testimony to the reality of the death that Jesus knows He's going to face well before He has to face it. Now, keep in mind, at this point of time, we are finishing off the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, or otherwise known as Sukkot, this is the feast, the last feast of what is called the High Holy Days, and it takes place usually somewhere between September and October. So, being the last feast, roughly about the end of October time frame, 
you've got from that all the way over in period of time to March, April, before Jesus is placed upon a cross at the time of Passover. So you do have a span of time before Jesus is going to have to face this gruesome end, and yet still Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him. He knows the end that he has to face, and he testifies to them. Once he testified to Nicodemus alone when he said that that the Son of Man will be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, another time... We see with the scribes and Pharisees here in verse number 28 that Jesus would say, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you shall know that I am He. In the reality that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, it will only be at that point. Why? Because as Joseph of Arimathea will claim the body of Jesus and will will wrap the body very quickly and place it in a tomb to be able to keep the the sin of Jesus' murder from the hands of the people, the whole nation of Israel at that point, according to their beliefs, that on the third day you will very quickly discover that Jesus was everything that he said he was, for he will no longer be in that tomb. And, and for 40 additional days from that point, he will be alive and over 500 individuals are going to be able to meet with Jesus post-resurrection and as Paul testified many of them would be alive during the times of Paul even though some have fallen asleep so we find that Jesus when he testifies that when you have lifted up the son of man then shall you know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. And the reality is is that Jesus doesn't raise himself up. That's a work of the Father. Jesus is is the the very lamb, the very principle of redemption, but the truth of salvation is that it comes from the Father. It was the Father that sent Jesus to be our Savior, to be our redemption. It is the Father that draws us to Jesus through the Holy Spirit of God. It is the Father whose grace covers us to be able to come to faith in Jesus. And it is the mercy of the Father that allows us opportunity to receive Jesus. And so everything actually is coming from the Father. The work of the Son and the work of the Spirit are both works that glorify the Father. And so our lives post-salvation are meant for the purpose of glorifying our Father in heaven. As was said in the Westminster Confession of Faith, as well as the London Baptist Confession of Faith, and, and many others, the Heidelberg Confession of Faith in Belgium, uh, they say that the chief end of man is to glorify God. The purpose being is that it was the Father that provided salvation unto man, that it was the Son that glorified the Father in the death and in the resurrection. It was the Holy Spirit that glorifies the Father in revelation of the Word of God and the drawing of man unto the Father. And so in both the Spirit and the Son, in their glorifying of the Father, they seal us unto the day of redemption as being a purchased possession of the Father for the purpose in our lives of 
glorifying the Father. So it's a thrill when you hear Jesus in his testimonies saying that when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. That's the treasure of being a child of God is that we don't have to figure out what to say. We don't have to figure out uh, how to to be, how to live, and anything as committing our heart unto Christ and as committing our lives unto the Word of God. Our Father in heaven will teach us everything that is necessary for us to know and to receive in order to live the gospel, in order to live as pleasing the Father. And Jesus said, He, in verse 29, He that sent me is with me. There is never at any given time a point at which the Father is separated from the Son except for the time where the Son hangs upon the cross at Calvary. During the time of, of the, the cross, there are three hours that are recognized where Jesus is, for the first time in all of eternity, separated from the Father. And during that period of three hours, it, the whole world, I believe, is engulfed in darkness because the, the, the very glory that once was was shown through Jesus is now completely blacked out by the wickedness of man and the father it's as though he turns his back upon his son that he cannot look upon that sin that he that in that turning proverbial turning of his back it brings forth total darkness because God is light and so that we see that he that sent me is with me. And, and the powerful truth behind that is, is that Jesus has sent us. Because the scriptures also tell us that even as the Father has sent me, so also I send you, go into all the world, Jesus would testify to his, his disciples. And since we are his disciples, his word applies directly to us. And so that we can understand that he that sent us is with us. Jesus is directly connected to us. And the Holy Spirit is within us, dwelling to seal us. The Father is with us. In fact, we, we have the triune God working with us always, which there's nothing more thrilling than that reality in itself. And so that we can rejoice in, in our salvation, but not only that, we can rejoice in the work that is produced in us because of our salvation as we share the gospel with, with anyone and everyone is knowing that, that Jesus, as he has commissioned us, has not sent us out all by ourselves, but that he is always with us just as the Father is always with him. There's a comfort found in this truth, Jesus would say, He that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Now, when we feel alone, perhaps that means that there's something we need to think about as concerning what we're doing with our lives to consider if we 
have left our first love behind. We think about Revelation chapter number 2 and the church at Ephesus, the first six verses of Revelation, and, and we realize, or the first seven verses, we, we realize that, you know, the, this reality is that the reason why the Father has not left Jesus alone is because He does always those things that please Him. Well, we find ourselves not as being perfect as concerning being flawless like Jesus, even though we are complete in Christ, we are not Christ, and therefore we are not perfect to the, to the ability to be flawless or faultless. And so that we discover in those moments that we are doing things that are not pleasing to the Father, that we would find ourselves feeling, I should say, left alone. And that church at Ephesus, as it had, had that one thing that is against it, that they had left their first love or left the love that they had at the first that the reality of this is that we can do those things that are not pleasing and therefore have that sensation or or feeling that we are alone but that's a warning sign it ought not to be a lamentation that we say well god's just not with me he doesn't love me anymore no it's not the case at all when we when we have that sensation of of loneliness or not being with the Father, it doesn't seem like uh, God's communicating with us. It doesn't seem like our prayers going up aren't even making it out of the ceiling. It's because there might be something happening in our heart, might be something happening in our life that is not pleasing to God. And, and we may have left Jesus behind on a trail that we were chasing of our own desire. And, and that, that loneliness that we're experiencing may very well be a catalyst that helps us evaluate where we currently are and what we're currently thinking and how we're currently acting so that we can have an opportunity to be able to repent and have an opportunity to be able to reestablish that beautiful fellowship that, that re-engages that walk together with King. So, something to think about. The beautiful challenge that is to the people that are extremely religious. Now, I want to say this about the Pharisees and the scribes, of course, the Sadducees included. These guys, on outward appearance and on outward activity would seem to be the most saved people of all saved people okay they they would they, they've got all the right words they've got all the right actions they've got all the right activities they've got all the right clothes they've got all the right prayers they've got the word of god they know the word of god they teach the word of god they, they i mean they've got it all together the problem is, is that, well, Jesus would call them things like uh, whitewashed tombs. Jesus would call them sepulchers that on the outside are beautiful and ornate, but on the inside are dead man's bones. So the reason why the Son of Man would say such a thing is because of verse number 27. Now, regularly throughout from chapter 5, we go into chapter 6, we deal with all of the, the confrontation of chapter 7, moving into chapter 8. The reason why they do the things that they do, the accusations that they made of Jesus, the 
the desire to kill him and all of these things, even so much as to try and destroy that poor woman's life that was caught in the very act of adultery, it is because of verse number 27 here in John 8. They understood not that he spoke to them of the Father. They didn't know the Father. The very, the very God, Elohim, the, the very Yahweh that they would pray to and say, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, the, the very God, the, the King of the universe, the Lord, that they would pray when they say, Baruch atah Adonai, they say, Blessed is the Lord, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, the King of the universe. Our God, the King of the universe, you know that, and and they would pray and they would give such accolade and such praise, and you would think that they were, they were just mighty in in, in God, but they just didn't understand. You know, one of the things here that that I like to do in in the upcoming part of of the year, right? We're going into March and in April sixteenth. Let's see, fourteen, fifteen. I think it's April sixteenth or seventeenth this year is going to be uh, what what the Christian Christendom Christianity calls Easter. Of course, I don't care much for the concept of Easter. Not only do I not understand how bunny rabbits in this moment of the year can lay eggs, the concept of an Easter bunny and and an egg finding, anyways, but but because that that it directly contradicts the Passover, it directly spits in the face of the work of Christ as the Lamb of God in, in that beautiful season of Pesach, which is not the same as the Roman holiday of Easter or the worship of Ishtar. So it's very important for me to, to really, I like to bring out the, the Passover and I like to celebrate by teaching the Seder meal. Now, the Seder meal would, would be the, the Last Supper of Christ. It would be the time that Jesus would meet with his disciples in the upper room. And, and during this period of time, there would have been in there for four hours celebrating this feast. Now, they would have done it a little bit different because at the time that they're in the upper room with the disciples, he's not dealing with uh, children, which... Children are a very huge part of the Seder meal. There are four questions that are given to children to ask of the leader of the feast as concerning what the point of the Passover is and why people are reclining at, at the table and instead of standing prepared to leave and why people are rejoicing instead of being solemn. And, and there's all kinds of things that children get to do. They have to find... The afikomen. The afikomen is a burial cloth, essentially, that has a, a broken part of uh, a whole piece of matzah that is in it that is hidden. The children are removed from the room at the beginning of the feast, and this, this bread, this piece is hidden somewhere in the room, and after the meal, the children are, are literally employed, as it was, to find this hidden manna as it was and for the child that finds it and comes and brings it to the master of the feast a, a ransom is paid to receive that bread from the child there 
they're given a piece of money in exchange for that bread. All of these things that that happen from the first cup uh, of suffering and the second cup of plagues to the third cup of of redemption to the fourth cup of praise all of these different elements that exist inside of this seder meal all testified to the authority of jesus the power of god unto salvation through the lamb that he provided in christ and and modern christianity has totally lost that the the feasts that would be kept by the church for 300 years until the time that Emperor Constantine took the reins over of the bishops in charge of the churches that would become ultimately under his authority the Roman Catholic Church. Up until that period of time, you you had these seven feasts of God being celebrated by the church. And I mean, this this isn't something that just disappeared overnight. It was celebrated by uh, our congregation. It would be like our congregations in, in these modern times. Everybody who's connected right now, whatever church you're going to, it would be recognized for 300 years from the time of Christ by by the way, who kept these feasts? The very important point. If we were going to do as Jesus did, we would be keeping these feasts because Jesus never missed one. He said, well, well but Jesus was, was Jewish, and so he, he did the Jewish thing. But then Jesus also uh, started the church and created Christianity through himself, and so it's a separation. Well, no, that's not true. These feasts are not Jewish, they belong to God, and they were for a purpose of a reminder of the work of God, like Sukkot in John chapter number 8, well, 7 and 8. Sukkot is to remind us that this world is temporary, that its things are not permanent, that there is coming a kingdom of our Christ, and that the the things eternal are the things that we are to look for, not caring as much about the things that are now, for they will burn up in a fire. And so that is the point of Sukkot, is, is acknowledging the coming kingdom and that this world is very temporary. And, and so it's very important that we, as the church that is saved in Christ, that we recognize the things of God, the work of God, as revealed through those seven feasts. And so that we find that these scribes, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these religious leaders of Israel ought to have known this. They ought to have recognized this. Above everyone else, they are the ones who have studied the Word of God, who are to know the Word of God, but they don't. They replace the Word of God with the Word of man in the Talmud, and they, they chase after the rabbis more than the Father who has commanded them. And so they look not to God's word for the direction of their life, but to the Talmud or man's word for what God said to guide them through life. Now, you've got a choice that you have to make, Christian. You're either going to follow God's word as the guide for your life, or 
you're going to follow man's word about what God said to guide your life. Now, me personally, I want God's word to guide my life, which is why I'm not telling you what to think, which is why I'm not even trying to to tell you what to do. What I want to do is give you the Word of God, bring you to the reading of the Scriptures, and and as I provide an explanation of those things that are written, I don't expect anyone to follow that explanation as gospel. Praise God that it can be wrong, for man is fallible but that you engage your heart to the Word of God and become excited about the things that are written therein as they are written so that you may be led by the Lord in the purity of His Word instead of just chasing after the wind of every other person that preaches anything and everything is saying, well, it sounds good, let's follow that. Don't ever do that. I just told you what to do. <laughs> but it was sound advice. Don't ever follow what you're being told just because it sounds good. Praise God. There's a lot of things that sound good that'll kill you. I mean, this is as simple as that. Jesus, he told them, the reason why, by the way, they would sound good, these Pharisees, these scribes, they would sound right. They would sound a righteous they would they would seem to be the people of god but the issue that they have is that they don't understand the father they don't understand the very god to whom they worship and that's the problem but by the way i think that's a huge problem in our society today as well in verse number 25 the challenge is given unto jesus who are you who are you? And and it's a comedy that they would have to ask this by this point is because the assumption is you haven't figured it out yet. I mean, he's done all of these miracles. He's done all of this uh, amazing things. I and mean, if you'd asked Jairus, he raised his, his 12-year-old daughter to life again. You asked the man at Pool of Bethesda, he raised him from being lame. You, you ask the, the blind Bartimaeus who receives his sight. And then, of course, we get into the next chapter, 9, and we see the, the whole dealings of that blind man that receives his sight. You, you, you think of the, the wine, water into wine, the, the very miracle at the wedding feast of Canaan, the, the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, have you not yet figured out who this is? And they say to him, who are you? And Jesus said, I'm the same guy that I said to you from the beginning. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the same guy. You just haven't been listening. I told you that, that I am one with the Father, and you're just not listening. And it's impossible for you to, to know Jesus if you don't know the Father. And it's impossible for you to know the Father if you don't accept Jesus. It's impossible for you to, to be able to have the faith if you reject the Savior. The Scripture tells us very plainly in Hebrews chapter number 11 that without faith it is impossible to please God. For those that, that desire to please God must believe that He is. you got to believe that in Jesus, His Messiah. you got to believe that He is God. 
and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. This is where faith comes from. And yet these people, they say, who are you? It just proves that they have no idea of faith. They, they have no connection to God. They have nothing to do with God. They're, they're, they're kites in the wind. And it comes down, and, and we see in verse number 22 that uh, then said the Jews, will he kill himself? Let's back up a little bit. And we see that in verse number 21, Jesus again said to them, I go my way and you shall seek me and you and you shall die in your sins because where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, Jesus, if you paid attention to this just now, Jesus just literally told them that they were going to hell. I mean, Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't come. He said, I'm going my way and you're going to look for me. And you're going to die in your sins. I mean, literally, Jesus just said, guess what, guys? You're, you're going to hell because they, their heart has rejected him. But the Jews said, will he kill himself? Now, of course, the belief among the Jews in this period of time and many different religions today believe that, of course, in suicide, that, that would separate you from God, the killing of yourself, and so that you would be condemned regardless of what your statement of faith was. It doesn't matter if you made a claim to salvation that you, that you did all in some religious faith that you, you that you kept all of the sacrament that you did all of these things if you kill yourself you've just erased all of that and you're condemned to hell nevertheless the assumption is by these jews because he said one i'm going my way and two you're gonna die in your sins and where i'm going you can't come well they said uh, is he gonna die is he gonna kill himself because they said, where you go, you cannot come. And the whole point is, is that we're not going to hell. The idea, where I go, you cannot come. Well, if he kills himself, it means he's condemned himself to hell. And we, the religious sect of, of Judaism, we know that we're going to heaven. I mean, we've been circumcised with the eighth day of our birth. We, we've gone through our mitzvah and have been declared bar mitzvah, a sons of, of the law. So we know that we are connected to Israel and that we will have place in the kingdom of God when Messiah comes and establishes his reign. So we know where we're going to be because of our circumcision and because of our, our agreement with the law. Uh, but if you kill yourself, then we know we're not going to be where you are because suicide is murder, and that is an instant condemnation to hell. So obviously we're not going to be where you are if you kill yourself. But of course, Jesus didn't mean that at all. And when you see verse 23, Jesus read the thoughts and intents of their heart. He said, you're from beneath. I'm from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And therefore, I said, you shall die in your sins. Verse 24, you shall die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am the Messiah, I am he, you shall die in your sins. Please take a moment and receive this teaching from Jesus in verse 24 at this moment. Just receive this. If you do not believe that I am he, 
you shall die in your sins. So vital for us to set aside all of the things that we're doing, to set aside all of the things that we're teaching, to set aside all of the positions that we hold in whatever church that we're members of. It's so important for us to, to separate ourselves from the religiosity that may engulf us and just take a moment to consider, have we believed in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ? Have we believed? Jesus said, you shall die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. Do you believe? That is so priceless that Jesus, time and time again, through the compassion that is in the Father, would continue to reach out to this people that are desiring for his death to bring them another opportunity to hear the reality of truth and the gospel to be saved. God, God loves you enough to continue to, to, to tell you the reality of salvation. Do you believe? And so many, they just don't understand. I think that it's interesting in verse number 20 that Jesus is teaching while in the treasury, <laughs> the very one place that would be the center of, of most of those people's God is there in the treasury. That Jesus, that Jesus would be in that place where all of the money would be counted, where it would be collated, where it would be uh, factored and, and, and stacked and, and, and kept, all of that. And, and this is most people's God. The very temple tax that would be done to the people of Israel for the purpose of the upkeep of the temple and the maintenance thereof. The very, the very concept that they would, they would drive into the people of, of the multitudes of money that they would acquire and the, the status symbol of those Sadducees or Pharisees that would draw those funds to be able to live a higher lifestyle than the rest of the people that they are actually supposed to be serving they're living high above them and the reality is is that it all happens right there in the treasury and so where is Jesus teaching right there in the treasury bringing out truth in a place filled with lies and so it comes down and I love this this challenge that they give to him in verse number 13 that this the Pharisees say, say to him you bear record of yourself and your record isn't true now uh, in this type of argument which is very beautiful it, it, there is command and response and so the Pharisees have spoken their peace, but then they remain silent, and Jesus has opportunity to re rebut their, their position, to refute their, their argument by presenting his own information. But in this period of time, they will remain silent as Jesus is teaching. And what's happening is, is that they're calculating the words that Jesus is saying to be able to try and find a refutation of their own against those things that Jesus is speaking. And the beautiful point to this whole idea in the argument is that Jesus has that liberty of time to be able to share his position, in which case the people that are surrounding both parties have an opportunity to be able to hear both sides. 
So the challenge that they bring to Jesus in verse number 13 is that your record isn't true because you're speaking about yourself. About like what they do, but nevertheless, it doesn't matter. That's what they're complaining about. And Jesus answers and he explains to them that his record is true because his father certifies his record. And he says, you judge after the flesh. He says, I don't judge anybody. But if I judge, my judgment is true because my judgment is not mine, but the Father's that gave it to me. And the same thing is true with anything that may be judged by us in this modern day. As we utilize the Word of God to judge sin, we speak out about sin. The very fact that adultery is wrong is a judgment against adultery. The fact that murder is evil is a judgment against murder. The very fact that that we could say fornication is wrong, sex before marriage is just wrong, and it's a judgment that is that is passed. and And people, especially with that concept of fornication, will immediately jump on the bandwagon of judge not lest you be judged. Well, I'm sure you're just as guilty as anybody else, so you don't have a right. Stop right there. The judgment that is rendered against fornication is not my own. The judgment against fornication is given by the Father. It's written in the Word. So that it is not my judgment about this thing that I had to accept, indeed, of my own accord uh, of, of evil doing, whether it be this or that or anything else that the Word of God testifies to. There are plenty of things for every soul that has ever been saved in, in the walk of their sanctification that they had to have prayers with God to get themselves right because they discovered that the nature of their heart was only evil continually. And so that it is the word of God that brings forth the judgments that we must be accepting of because it is not mine, you, or anybody else's judgment. It's the Creator's judgment on the things that are unpleasing and upsetting to Him. And this is something that we must have to accept. Jesus points out, it's also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Well, I bear witness and the Father bears witness. Now you got two witnesses. Of course, they ask him this very important question, and I'm going to have to be done with this. But they said, where is your father? Now, of course, the assumption that these guys have is that Joseph is his father. But they said it anyways, where is your father? And Jesus doesn't point it out because there's no point in pointing it out. These guys have no idea who God is. So they're never going to be able to know who God is. And they're never going to be accepting of who Jesus is. And he knows that already. So what is his statement? You neither know me nor my father. If you'd known me, you'd know my father also. Well, keep in mind his own disciples didn't even know uh, God very well. <laughs> now, I know I said I was dumb, but I got to get this point across in verse number 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Dealing with those two candlesticks that we were talking about, both the message on Sunday yesterday at the, at the Feast of Sukkot, they have these two poles. They're 75 feet in height. They've got two lamps that are on top of it, oil burning lights that are on top of it. 
and and they are lit and for the for the eight days they are continuously burning these lights sitting 75 feet high for all the world that is around the the temple of Jerusalem to be able to see those lights burning day or night they burn and Jesus uses those candlesticks to be able to say, I'm the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Very important for you to be illuminated by the word of God this afternoon, to be able to see the truth of who Jesus is, to know him, to know the Father, and to believe. Remember that the word of God testifies to us that we are to believe in him and it's very important for us to receive that truth of of jesus and he said you shall die in your sins if you do not believe that i am the messiah you shall die in your sins take heart and consider these things this day father we thank you we praise you for the blessing of the word that has been given to us. We thank you for Messiah Jesus. We thank you for the gift of, of his personality, of his authority and power in the midst of all of these questions and questionings and, and that Jesus knows the intent and desire of these people is to kill him, yet he did not shrink away from his duty to proclaim the gospel and yet for those who hated him he was all the more bold in his approach to the truth and so we pray that you will give us wisdom to know how to be as bold as our savior while at the same time loving others and being compassionate and so we pray that you will just bless us, Lord. Thank you for starting us off this week with such a truth that Jesus is the light of the world, that Jesus is the salvation of the soul, and that, Father, if we're not going to believe in your Son, then indeed we shall be separated from life and die in our sins. We thank you. We praise you for your teaching us today. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, God bless you guys. Keep you guys. Cause his face to shine upon you guys. And we'll catch you tomorrow for John chapter number 8, starting off in verse number 31 and, and discovering the truth that shall set us free and the absolute challenge against Jesus that will come from that point. So, God bless. <laughs>